I want to go ahead and head into the service this morning. Uh, we are in the middle of this series, Uncomfortable, and today we are going to talk about something that is going to just allow us all to release a collective groan, and that question is this, how should Christians respond to politics? Oh, man, seriously. Everybody in the room is just like, oh, man, really? That's what we're going to discuss today? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. You know what's funny is that all of our politicians right now, we are heading into the campaign season for uh, president. We will have an election in about one month from today, give or take a few days. And right now, all of these candidates are talking about the big problems that they're going to solve. They're going to solve global warming, and they're going to bring peace to the Middle East, and they're going to approach health care different, and they're going to make social security solvent, and I don't think they're going to accomplish any of it. If you're curious, I don't think they're going to get one thing done. I want a political candidate that just gets up there and says, look, I tell you what, the problems that we're facing are too big. I don't have the fog as to how we're going to fix it, but I know one problem that I can't fix, the DMV, right? And I'm going to fix the DMV. How many of you know that guy has my vote, right? He's honest. He says, I, I give up on the rest of this, but I can fix the little things in life, the DMV. Like, I can actually make sure the potholes are filled on your street. Like, that guy has my vote. And I think that's where a lot of us are at. We're at this place where we have just given up on having hope for our government. We have given up having hope that they're ever going to have solutions. And so it's created a very serious situation in our culture today where the average American is tired and wore out of talking about our politics. Now, why in the world will we, would we be addressing this question in church today? And here's why. Because in one year, the American public are going to go to the polls and vote for the President of the United States and several members of Congress. And we do not know the outcome of that election, but one thing that we can guarantee, it is going to be a very ugly process getting there. There's going to be a lot of yelling, there's going to be a lot of screaming, there's going to be a lot of name calling. Our political system has turned into basically what is resulted into a childish uh, traffic jam where everyone's just pointing fingers, yelling, honking their horns, and we're making zero progress in life. And you might be in this room today and you have a lot of passion for the direction of our country. Maybe you know your favorite uh, candidate already, you know their platform, you have pithy arguments to uh, try to get a logical person to understand your point of view, you're trying to get the opposite uh, party to see it your way, and you're shocked that half the people in this country are going to go for, vote for some person that views it differently than you, and you don't understand how those people can vote for that moron, right? Then you have the other side of the aisle that's doing the exact same thing. They know their candidate, they know their platform, they're calling names, they're putting things on Facebook, and they can't believe that half of the country goes and votes for the other idiots. So we have two morons, and we just have to have a decision. Who are we going to vote in president and in our Congress? You might be in this room today, and you hate all things politics. I'm married to that person in this room, right? Charity hates everything that has to do with politics. Um, she does not like talking about it. She doesn't want to hear about it. But here is the reality. Most Christians, if you love the debate or you hate the debate of politics, understand the seriousness of engaging in our culture and trying to be a representative of Jesus Christ. And that is why we are addressing this topic, because as Christians, we are called to represent and to uphold righteousness in our culture. We are called to be Jesus's hands and feet in the culture, and we are called to bring his kingdom to earth. The question that we have as uh, American Christians is, what does that mean? 
How do I live this out? Because our culture and our country has descended into chaos and politics has turned into a religion in our culture. You know how we know that? Because we will fight for what we believe when it comes to our candidate. We will name call, we will demonize other people. Politics has descended into a place of idolatry for the average uh, person in our country today. And as Christians, we have to figure out how do we approach this? How do we balance our devotion to Jesus and to our country at the same time without crossing lines? Do Christians jump full force into the political spectrum trying to influence the culture through the politics or should Christians engage in politics at all on social media? Should Christians run for office? Should Christians try to uphold uh, political representatives to our biblical standards? How do we approach these things? This is a very complex issue with complex questions that as Christians we should be trying to figure out and to make matters even more complex in our culture today, Christians have been vilified and demonized for their faith and for their belief in the biblical values. And so as Christians, how do we properly engage when we're being attacked by other people? These are questions that we're going to dive into today. And my prayer is, regardless if you love politics or you hate politics, that as a local church, we would engage with the culture the same way Jesus engaged with his culture. He was a man who stood for truth, who never compromised on the truth, and showed hope to the world. And here's the big idea of this message today. The gospel message, the message of Jesus Christ, made my true citizenship in heaven. Therefore, the gospel message is my source of hope and it's my filter for how I engage into this culture. I want that to sink in for a second. You're not an American first after you give your heart to Jesus. You're a citizen of heaven first. And so we don't engage in our faith from the side of an American. We engage in our faith as a Christian, and then we engage in our citizenship here on earth. Now, I need to give you a disclaimer today. Most of the time I preach from the Bible, meaning I start with a passage of Scripture. Uh, However, there are occasions when you need to preach to the Bible where you start with a question or a premise and you figure out what the Bible has to say about that. And that is what we're going to do today. So I want to pray and then I want to dive into this topic. If you would, let's go to the Lord together. Lord, we just come before you this morning and I pray, Lord, that as we study your word, as we ask questions, Lord, you have indeed placed us in a great opportunity by being American citizens. But we also understand that our country is facing a lot of challenges. And Lord, I pray that you just teach us how to engage with the culture properly so we can be your light and we can shine in the darkness and we can show that you are indeed the hope of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's what I need you to know today. The culture is our mission field. It is not our enemy. The culture is our mission field. It is not our enemy. Before you can even begin to address and engage the culture and politics specifically, we need to understand how Jesus has called us to interact with the culture. And Jesus made a mandate to us in Matthew 28, and starting in verse number 16 through 20, very familiar passage of scripture. The scripture says this, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain in which Jesus had directed them. Jesus has just ascended. He had told his disciples, meet me in Galilee. They have gone there and they are encountering the resurrected Lord. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. 
And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am always with you to the end of the age. Now, this scripture is known as the Great Commission. This is the mission of the church and every man, woman, and child who calls themselves a Christian. If you want to know the will of God for your life, this is it right here. And that is to go and make disciples in all of the world. And so we are to go into our culture and make disciples of Jesus Christ. That was the commandment of our Lord. We are to live in such a way that we point people to Jesus as our source of hope and salvation. And so we are called to see our culture as a mission field and not as an enemy. Now, this is where some in the church have fallen into a trap. In our zeal for biblical truth, in our zeal for the things of God, in our zeal for maintaining biblical morals in our culture, we have forgotten that there are people who disagree with us that are not our political enemies. They are just people who need to know Jesus. Oh, I thought I'd get some amens on that. Come on, let's be real, church. We have started to marginalize people who disagree with our biblical values as the enemy and not as a mission field. You know how we know that? Because all we have to do is scroll through social media for a while and we would see that truth play out for us. Sometimes we see people we disagree with as enemies and not potential brothers and sisters who need to meet Jesus Christ. It has been my observation that mockery in memes has replaced the gospel message by the most vocal Christians among us. Ooh, can I say that? Yeah. Okay, good. You're starting to talk to me a little bit. All right? We need to be honest. We need to really take stock and evaluate how do I communicate with the culture? Am I communicating with the culture through mockery because they disagree with me? Or am I presenting clear, concise gospel message? Because what Jesus' last command was not Go and make Republicans of all people. Jesus' last command was to go and make disciples, right? Now, please understand me. This is not about protecting someone else's feelings, right? This is not about being sensitive to someone else's feelings. This is about protecting our witness. We are damaging our witness by taking up a banner of politics. And we need to be very careful with that. This revelation really hit me years ago when I realized that even, um, even though I'm probably about as conservative as you can get on every instance of the word, um, and even though I believe in moral conservatism from the lines of scripture, that I myself was engaging in a mockery on social media and to other people, and that was not advancing my witness. Uh, you might not know this about me, but I'm kind of a vocal person who's opinionated, right? <laughs> Ronnie, it hurts when you laugh that loud. <laughs> Right? And when we engage in that manner, we are discrediting our witness. If the church is going to be a messenger of the gospel and of the hope of the world, we need to remember that the, that the world and the culture is a mission field. It's not a battleground to be won. It's not a battleground to be won. I think it's important to understand this because, as I said, Jesus did not say go into all the world and make sure everybody votes for the Republican. Jesus did not say go into all the world and make people live the way you live. Jesus did not go into all the world and tell them to live morally. Jesus said go into all the world and share the gospel and make disciples. This teaches us something. Your testimony is more effective than your vote. 
Your testimony is more effective than your vote. The culture is your mission, Phil, not the enemy. Now, why do I want you to know this? Because the hope for America will never come from the right political member being in the White House. I want you to think about that. I said a moment ago that I truly believe in a lot of ways that politics has become the idol in America. We might say, I hate politics, but yet we're very vocal on social media sharing things that are attacking someone of the opposite side. And I think sometimes we give the impression that if Christians don't have the right man in in the White House, then our churches are going to close up, that we're going to shut down, and that there's no hope for the church. But the reality is this, is that hope for America comes from Jesus Christ alone, and when he takes up residence in the heart of every single person who calls himself America. That's the hope. It's not a person in the White House, it's not a member of the Congress, it's not even somebody on the Supreme Court. Hope for America is when Jesus takes up residence in every single heart in America. Our example for this should be Jesus. Our example is always Jesus, and Jesus told us and showed us how to live this out. Jesus engaged with his culture of that day. I want you to stop and think about this reality for a second. For many of us in this room, it's very difficult to engage with a quote-unquote sinful culture, and there's no doubt about it. When you look into our culture today, we have drifted morally. We, we do not uphold very many moral ideals at all. We have drifted from what we would say are biblical morals in almost every instance of the word, in almost every issue that we're facing. And Jesus, though, was, gr- was growing up in the exact same situation. He grew up under the Roman Empire, and if you know anything about the Roman Empire, the things that we are facing today are not new from what they were facing then. The same issues that we're facing today are the same issues that Jesus would have grown up in his day. Now, you and I might be repulsed by some of the things that we're facing, but no one had a harder time engaging with his culture than Jesus. Jesus left the perfection of heaven to come live among sinful humanity. Everything Jesus encountered on earth would have been repulsive to his nature. However, he did not launch a war with culture. He saw the culture as his mission field. Now, the question we need to ask ourselves is this. How did Jesus view the culture as a mission field? How did he actually flesh that out? Because he should be our example of how we, as Christian Americans, face our culture today. And here's some things I want you to notice that Jesus did. Jesus spoke a different language than his culture culture. Jesus spoke a different language than his culture. In Jesus's day, their culture was very hypocritical because they taught the law, but they did not live the law, right? Jesus is constantly telling the religious leaders, you are hypocrites. You're laying weight upon people, and then you're adding man-made traditions upon people, and you guys aren't even living it yourselves, He saw and recognized the hypocrisy in the religious leaders of that day. But what you see is, is that Jesus comes along and he doesn't abolish the law. Instead, he elevated the law and got to the heart. And Jesus offered hope. Jesus spoke a different language than the culture. In fact, the crowd said of him, he teaches as one who has authority. We haven't heard anyone who has ever been like him. Now, this is a good pattern for you and for me, because we need to speak a different language than the culture. What do I mean by that? Well, as I said, if you look into our culture today, you will see that everybody in the culture speaks with criticism, cynicism, and fear. Why don't you think about that? You've watched the news. The headlines are either critical, cynical, or fearful. 
Why? Because those things get ratings. And I'm afraid that we as Christians have fallen into that same trap. We speak in either criticism, cynicism, or fear. And it doesn't matter who's in the White House, the headlines are always the same. Last two presidents, when Barack Obama was there, people who disagreed with him said he's antichrist and the world is going to go is going to the end. Four years later, Donald Trump gets voted in. He's the dumbest man who's ever lived. He's an idiot who's driving this country into the ground, and the world's going to end. It's the same thing said about both men. You know what's crazy is we're all still here. Why? The culture always is covered in criticism, cynicism, or fear. And we as Christians, if we're ever going to engage in the culture, we have better speak a different language. We need to speak with hope, with faith, and with grace. Now here's what I want you to catch about this. The culture has a reason to be critical, cynical, and fearful. Why? Because they're looking to a man to be the solution to their problem. We as Christians can and should speak with hope, faith, and grace because we have found the Savior who is the solution. So let me ask you a question. If we as Christians are speaking the same language as the culture, do they really believe us that we found hope? We say we found the hope of Jesus. We say we found his love and his grace. But if we're speaking the same language and all the things that are coming out of our mouth are, are, are covered in fear and criticism, well, if we get the wrong person on the Supreme Court, the church is going to have to shut the doors. Man, if we don't get the right person in the White House, then they're going to start attacking Christians. If we're speaking the same language, what makes us different than them? Man, I thought there'd be a good amen there. All I got those Mimi. Mimi, if they get serious, you're going to have to help me out. I know this is hard to hear, but unfortunately it's the truth. We speak the same language and that, that, is, that is discrediting our message. We need to be careful that we're speaking a different language. If you believe the hope for this country lies in a man, then you are going to speak the same language as the culture. And it reveals our heart where we really put our hope in by how we speak. For the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if we truly believe that Jesus is sovereign, that he has everything under control, that he's our hope for the future, then we're not going to be distraught when the wrong person, quote-unquote, ends up in the place of a political seat. How did Jesus view the culture as a mission field and not the enemy? Jesus stood for truth and not against people. Hear me, we as Christians should never, ever, 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 ever compromise on the truth. And I'm getting upset that a lot of Christians are compromising on the truth. The scripture is truth, God's word is the truth, and we live by the truth. We don't apologize for the truth. We give the truth, and we let the cards fall where they may. The question is, how do we carry the truth? And Jesus shows us a great way to carry the truth. We see that Jesus obviously always stood for the truth because he was the truth, but he never opposed people. And what I mean by that is he stood for righteousness and he opposed sin. Jesus never, he was not shocked that sinners lived like sinners. He knew that. He's eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, quote unquote, and the religious leader said, you're eating with these people. And he says, of course I'm eating with those people. The sick need the doctor, not the healthy. Now I want you to notice two things about his statement there. Number one, Jesus acknowledged that the people he was eating with were sick and they needed the truth. Jesus was not bowing away from the truth. But he also understood that he had the truth and until he gave them the truth and he helped them that they were going to remain sick. 
Once he gave them the truth, they could find spiritual healing. Our responsibility to the truth is not to wage war against people, but it's to simply stand upon the truth. That is how you are missional to the culture. You stand on the truth, all the truth, and that is not always easy to do, but you give the truth. And you don't just find the truth with the political party you align with, you stand on all the truth. And when our representatives step out of line morally, regardless if they're in our party or not, we call them on it. We say, you stand on the truth. This is wrong. This is what God's word says. When people do the right thing, even when they're not in our political party, we say that is upholding righteousness, and we applaud that. Our allegiance is not to a party. It's to the truth. How did Jesus view the culture as a mission field and not the enemy? He saw their cultural ideal and then explained how he fulfilled the ideal. I've talked about this a little bit on the last Sunday mornings, but I want to dive in here a little bit. We need to understand that almost everything has a cultural ideal to it, and we need to have sympathy to see that even though the culture is sinful, they normally have a moral ideal. Let me explain in Jesus' day. The moral ideal was freedom from a tyrannical government. They wanted freedom so they could worship God the way they read it in the Old Testament. Jesus came along and showed them that he fulfilled this ideal because in him there was freedom. Because where he was, the worshipers worshiped in spirit and in truth. And you can see that this was a problem even for his disciples. They got hung up on this a lot. Right? If you know the culture, you understand, of Jesus' day, you understand that the Jews knew in the bottom of their heart that the Messiah was going to be a political liberator. That when the Messiah showed up, he was going to kick the Romans out and everything was going to be okay. Then Jesus shows up and he says, I'm offering you a freedom. My kingdom's coming. Everybody's like, this is awesome. And he starts gathering a crowd. And then when he starts telling them, look, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the Lamb of God. Uh, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's what real freedom is. That's how you get real salvation. Everybody's like, this guy's crazy. And they start to leave him. Even his disciples and Acts, they ask him, are you now going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Everybody was looking for a political savior. And Jesus said, no, I am the freedom. I'm offering you spiritual freedom. I'm offering you hope. Jesus saw their ideal and then showed how he was the fulfillment of that. And we need to see that our cultural ideal and show them that Christ fulfills their ideal. Whatever it may be, Christ is the fulfillment of that ideal. Let's take an easy example that our culture is wrestling with, and that is pornography. Pornography is a sin that encapsulates almost 50% of the men and women uh, in America, including this room. It's an absolute epidemic. Statistics of that are pretty interesting if you start looking into them. Statistically speaking, men and women look at pornography about the same rate in a month. Men just look at it more often than women do. And it's an absolute cultural epidemic. Why is this such an epidemic when almost no one says it's good for you except the people trying to sell it to you? And I truly believe the ideal inside of pornography is people are desperately desiring intimacy. They want everything stripped away and they want to know and be completely known. But true intimacy is only found in Jesus Christ. There's people who stand in this country and they are lobbying for things that are morally repulsive to the word of God. But they do that because they have a moral ideal. But Jesus fulfills that ideal. The point of all this is that we need to understand that the culture is the mission field, not the battleground. And that's how we engage. You can start to show the culture 
that what they need most is only found in the truth of Jesus Christ. Now, now we have laid this groundwork that the mission field is the culture. How should we respond? How do we engage in this political climate that's so messy and volatile and angry? How do we flesh this out? What are we to do practically as Christians? Well, the scripture gives us a lot of things that we are to do. There's a lot of things the scriptures lay out that we're supposed to do in relation to our government. And I want to show these to you very quickly. First is this. Christians are called to live kingdom now, not culture up. Matthew 6, 9 through 13 is the Lord's Prayer. And here's what Jesus taught us to pray. He said, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. He said for us to pray that God's kingdom comes, his will be done. See, the world lives culture up. Culture up means that we as people see problems and we try to fix culture with culture solutions. We understand and we see this mindset play out in America. Anyone can look in the world and see that we have problems that need to be fixed. And so what the culture has said is we need to rise up and we need to fix these problems that we see. These things are not working right. We need to fix them. So we need to have government to be the the solution to the problems. This is how we get government to begin with. One man at one point shot a deer. He was eating the deer. Second man came behind him, clubbed him in the head, took his deer. And somebody said, man, we got to stop this and we got to fix this. We need to have some law and order. And boom, now you have government, right? And ever since then, that simple start has now led to more and more and more of a bureaucracy because we see a problem and we say, we got to come up with a solution to fix this problem. It kind of makes sense, right? In the United States, we have two primarily, two cultural ideals. We have the progressives and we have the conservatives. We have the left and we have the right. On the left, the progressives say this, look, there's some there are basic fundamental problems in our country and we need to look ahead for solutions. If you look at what's going on, this is bad. We need to progress forward so we can find new things to fix. And there's, there are points that they would, they would make is this, racism, slavery, oppression of women. We had to move beyond that. We needed to progress beyond that so that people can't sin against each other. The problem with the progressive outlook is that every time you start to progress, you start to redefine things that we would consider traditional values like marriage, gender, and abortion that we now call women's right to choose. The other side of that is the conservatives. The conservatives look at the problem in the culture and say, no, 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 no. We don't need to go forward. Moving forward has created the problems. We need to go back to a better time and hold to traditional values and traditional ideals. This would fix the problems that we have today. But the criticism towards the right would be, but in the good old days, you had slavery, you had racism, you had oppression, you had all these things. So as a Christian here, you might say, well, I I see both sides. I I don't want to go back to slavery days, and I don't want to go back to women couldn't vote, but I also want to hold on to moral truth. How do I do that? Here's how you do that. You don't look right. You don't look left. You look up. We look, culture is not the solution. Kingdom is the solution. So we look kingdom up and say, God, bring your kingdom here to earth. We're not going right. We're not going left. We're going up to God. We have to understand that we don't have the solutions. Culture cannot fix itself. Sin has marred it too much. Salvation will never be found in the culture. 
Hope is not going to be found in a Supreme Court ruling. It's not going to be there in the legislation. Jesus taught us to pray, and he said, God, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not about progressing or conserving. It's about living like Jesus. So what does the kingdom of God look like? It means to bear fruit of the Spirit. That will make a bigger impact than anything else. It means to allow the Holy Spirit to lead you in everything. It means to love God and love people. It means to stand firm on the truth and grace. It means I know my source and my solution is from above. That's how we're called to live. We must keep the mission first, the mission that Jesus gave us first and everything else second. Understand that God is never, ever going to bless the culture. Ever. That's not his way of fixing the problems. Jesus came to bring his culture, not to bless ours. This kingdom ethic comes down by the Holy Spirit and is caught by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus, and then he went out and started preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples, and they lived that kingdom out, and they changed the world. If we're not changing the world, it's because we're not living by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we're not allowing the Holy Spirit to lead us. It's your witness. It's the anointing of the Holy Spirit on your life. This is why we value being Spirit-led here at JFA. If you want to make a difference in your community, you allow the Holy Spirit to touch your heart, and everywhere you go, you live as a disciple of Jesus Christ. That might be praying for your waitress. That might be telling your coworker about Jesus. That might be pulling over to the side of the road and helping someone change their tire. That is being Spirit-led. That is allowing the Holy Spirit to work through you. And in those moments of showing kindness, you have the opportunity to point to who Jesus is. God is not for Republicans. He's not for Democrats. He's for His glory. How should Christians respond to the the political system of our day? Second, we are called to obey and respect authority. John 19, starting verse number 8, Jesus is standing before Pilate. He's about to be crucified, and here's what happens. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you or the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who sent, delivered me over to you has the greater sin. This is an amazing scripture. Think about what's going on here. Jesus is standing before Pilate. And Pilate did have the authority to release him or to crucify him. And in this moment, he starts questioning him, and Pilate's like, you know I could kill you at any moment. And Jesus said to him, you would have no authority unless it had been given to you from above. I want you to think about that. Jesus, the Son of God, is acknowledging that God is the one who gives all authority. And this follows the pattern that we see throughout the entire New Testament. Go read Romans 13, chapter, excuse me, Romans chapter 13, verse number 1, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, and I want to read you one out of Titus 3, verse Verse 1, it says, remind them to be submissive to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and show perfect courtesy towards all people. Wow. That's pretty heavy when you think about it. We have to have the right theology when it comes to authority and to government. God establishes the authority. 
Jesus, who is sovereign over all, standing there before Pilate and said, buddy, you have no authority unless I gave it to you. Jesus is doing two very important things for us. Number one, he's teaching us that he's the one that put everybody where they're at by his sovereign will. And number two, his word then goes on to tell us three times to respect the authority that he's placed there. That's heavy when you think about it, and that doesn't really settle very well for a lot of us. We may not like the authority, we may disagree with the authority, but we are called as Christians to respect, honor, and obey the authority unless it contradicts the word of God. What's even more amazing is the men who wrote that command. Those men wrote it under a time of extreme persecution from the authority. The authority was literally killing them when they're writing this, and they said, we need to honor this authority because God has placed it there. If anyone had the right to criticize, to mock, or to complain about the authority, it should have been the first Christians. However, we don't see that. They understood that God established that authority for some reason. Some reason God did that. We don't have to understand why God puts people in office. We don't have to apologize or defend those people. We are called to trust God that he knows what he's doing. Here again, it's important to understand. In the day and age where every person is critical of authority, when Christians are respectful and they respectfully disagree with authority and they speak to authority in honor, we stand out from the culture. It shows that we're actually different where it appears that literally no one in this country is able to speak with honor and courtesy and respect, if we as Christians would do that, if we would speak with respect, honor, and courtesy, we will differentiate ourselves from every other person who lives. And here's the thing we have to understand. When we're critical to the authority that God has established, we are being critical to God's design. We're being critical to God's design. Here's why it's important for you to know this. Because honor has nothing to do with the person, it has everything to do with us. I can honor someone if they deserve it or not. Honor speaks more about my character than it does the other person's character. And it's important for us to speak with honor because it's the only hope we have of being heard. If you want to make sure that no one listens to you, start being critical and calloused of heart. But if you want somebody to take what you're trying to give them serious, if you want people to take your testimony serious then we have to start speaking with respect and honor. And we can disagree, and we can stand on the truth, and we can call people to uphold righteousness, and we can do that in a respectful and honorable way. Now, that doesn't mean that we just let people do what they want. We are called to uphold the truth. And when people make mistakes, we are called to uphold righteousness. John the Baptist did that. Herod took his brother's wife. He said, that is a sin. You're not supposed to do that. And he was thrown in jail for it but you can still speak with honor. How do Christians respond respond, uh, to the politics of our culture? We are called to live kingdom down, not culture up. We're called to obey and respect. And number three, Christians, we are called to pray for our leaders. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2 says, First of all, then I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Regardless of who the leader is, we are called to pray and make intercession for them, and we are to pray that we can live peaceably in order to do what? Fulfill the Great Commission. God even encouraged the exiles in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 29, 7, he said this. He said, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare. You will find your welfare. 
I've heard a lot of people complain about a political leader and then say, but I pray for them all the time. And I think we have to be very careful about how we approach the Father when it comes to praying for leadership in our nation. I think we should approach the Father in prayer the same way that we would pray for our children. We don't always like what our children do. We may disagree with their actions from time to time, but we still pray for their health. We still pray for their safety. We pray for their salvation. We pray for their wisdom, and we pray for their welfare. And that's how we should approach and pray for the leaders of our nation. We pray, and we say, God, we understand that you put this person there for a reason, and I pray, Lord, that your goodness, that your grace, that your righteousness would flood their life, and Lord, that they could honor you in every decision that they make. You don't have to answer for if they are honoring God with their decisions. You just pray that God will lead them to the right place. And when we pray with that genuine concern in our heart for our leadership, I truly believe that God honors that. And I believe that we have a heart change, and I believe it makes our voice more valid in this culture because they can truly see that God is working through us to pray for people. Have you ever been really mad at somebody and you started praying for them and you realize that what you're mad about really didn't matter? Like, you should try this. Next time you and your spouse have an argument, say, pause, go to the other room, start trying to pray for them. Start changing your heart pretty quick. Kale just looks like cash. <laughs> Sorry. You're like, I don't want to do that because I just want to stay mad. If you want to stay mad, don't pray. But if you want to get it fixed, go pray. And it'll start changing your heart. And that's what we need as Christians. We need to pray and say, God, I pray for our leaders. I understand that they're not all in your word, but God, I'm not responsible for their decisions. That's them. I pray for them. And I pray that your light would shine into the darkness. How do Christians respond to politics? We are to live kingdom now, not culture up. We're called to obey and respect. And we're called to pray for our leaders. I want to close with this if the worship team would come back. Number four, as Christians, we should have a goal of peace with leadership. And that verse I read to you a moment ago in 1 Timothy, he said to offer prayers and supplications and intercessions. And then he says this, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Wow, that's heavy when you think about it. That we can lead a, a peaceful and quiet life. See, Paul understood that when we live a peaceful and quiet life, we're more likely to be heard by our coworkers. Revival in this country doesn't come from a White House. It comes from a supermarket. Revival in this country doesn't come from a Supreme Court ruling. It comes from your office where you meet people, your shop that you work with that guy and that field that you're in. That's where revival comes. When we as Christians take a place of honor and respect, people are going to hear our message more. And we got to live a godly and dignified life. I'm, I'm concerned that in our culture today, Christianity has lost its dignity by selling its soul out to a political ideal. The goal of Christians in our culture is not to be right. It's to honor God. And maybe some of the things that we're saying are right, but no one's listening to us. I believe it's because we're not living the way God's called us to live. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Live peaceably with all. When there's peace, then people can hear the gospel message. 
And you know what this country desperately needs right now? It needs peace. Peace is a thing that humanity has been looking for since the fall. You guys know the scripture. You know the story. Genesis chapter number three, man fell into sin. And what happened? Fear ran in. Fear ran in. Man went into hiding. We've lost our peace. And every decision that we've made since then is trying to bring peace back to our lives and to our culture. That's why we have houses. Because it's more peaceful in a rainstorm to live in a house than live outside in the field, isn't it? That's why we have jobs, because it brings money to the house. There's more peace when you can go buy groceries than when you're starving to death. That's why we have government. That way we're not clubbing each other over the head because we need some law and order because it, it brings peace. But what you notice is almost every political candidate, almost every government says, I have the solution for peace. And they've never been able to deliver. I was thinking about this in my lifetime. I wonder how many Middle East peace plans there have been. Everybody always comes up with one, and it never happens. Why? Because we're never going to be able to bring peace. Only Jesus brings peace. And church, we know peace. And our responsibility is to show peace to this world. We're to show people where they can actually find it. When the world throws stones, we don't. Why? Because we have peace. It might not have been the way we wanted it to, but we have peace because we know God's in control. When everybody's angry at each other, we're not angry because we have peace because we know where our true citizenship is. It's in God's kingdom. It's not here on earth. And this time that we're spending here on earth is so minute, so small, that it will not matter in the big scheme of things. This life is just a passageway to get to the real life where real peace is in heaven. Will you stand with me this morning? We've seen that we're called to view as our culture as a mission field, not an enemy. Therefore, change is only going to come through Jesus and not through some elected official. And our response to that truth is that we need to live kingdom now. We need to honor and pray, and we need to be living a peaceable life. Why do we want to do this? Because our fight is for righteousness. Righteousness, the righteousness of God. That's what people need. We're so muddied up with our sin. But Jesus came, took our sin upon him so he can put his righteousness in us. And then we can spend eternity with him. And that is our goal. That is our goal as Christians. That's why we pray for our leaders. That is why we witness through our testimony. Because our goal is to present the gospel. Will you bow your heads this morning? Lord, we just come before you today. And Lord, I pray that even though this is a message that probably a lot of us, we don't even like thinking about because of the, just the headache it brings when we look into our culture and our political mess, God. Lord, you have called us to engage in the culture. You have called us to be a witness and a testimony and a light. And Lord, I pray that we would honor you, that we would do that today. Lord, you've called us to pray. You've called us to be people who stand on the truth. You've called us to present righteousness, Lord. You've called us to respect and honor. And Lord, most importantly, you've called us to take the gospel into the world and make disciples. And Lord, I pray that we as a church, we here at J First Assembly, be a church that is marked by people who are so desperate and we desire more than anything 
to tell people who you are. Because God, you are the source. You are the truth. And Lord, you are the hope for our country. You are the hope for our county. You are the hope for every individual life that we come in contact with. And Lord, I pray that we would be those people. Today, I wonder if we can just honor God's word. God's word says to pray for our leaders, to pray for those in authority. And I wonder if today we can just stop for just a few moments and take this opportunity at the altar time to legitimately and wholeheartedly lift up a prayer to those people who God has placed in authority in this country and pray that we can live peaceful, dignified lives so that we can present the gospel. Would you be willing to join me today as we do that? Would you come and make this altar area a place of prayer where we honor the word of God and we pray for those in leadership today? If you want to make that decision with me, will you come? Let's begin to pray to the Lord today. Let's begin to lift up our leaders. Let's begin to be obedient to what God has called us to do. Let's take his words seriously and let's say, God, we're presenting prayers. You've called us to do that. And Lord, we're doing that. Will you come? Will you come find a place to prayer today? And let's begin to lift up the name of the Lord.